Let's turn to the book of Hebrews as we continue our study there. Whenever we come to the the word to study, whether you're uh, whether you're listening to a sermon, whether you're hearing somebody on the radio reading a book, whether you're reading for yourself and and studying, we have to come with a a, a proper process. We have to come uh, to the scripture with a, a respect for the fact that it's language. And keep certain things in mind. And the, the first three rules for understanding Scripture are context, context, and context. The first one was context, and the second one was context. And in case you missed the first two, the third one is context. Language works the same thing for us. If I, if I said to you that he has refused assent to laws most beneficial for the common good, you would have no idea what to do with that. If you're familiar with American history, it might sound familiar. If you're very familiar with the Declaration of Independence, it might sound very much like the first accusation that was made against George III in the Declaration of Independence. But without the surrounding text, that statement doesn't mean as much. And so whenever we come to Scripture, we have to understand the context of what it is we are reading. The recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, then let's understand some of the the context here, were Jews who had either fully trusted in Christ and had become Christians or had at least been confronted with the gospel and had begun to explore what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to be in Christ, rather than following the practices of Old Testament Judaism. They recognized that following Jesus meant turning away from the temple and its practices, the things that were just shadows of what was to come. But they found themselves missing what was taking place up on Mount Zion. And the truth is that the temple of Jerusalem and its practices were magnificent. And impressive. The entire Temple Mount in Jerusalem occupied and occupies today 35 acres. It's roughly 1,500 feet north to south and 1,000 feet east to west. By comparison, the Temple to Athena in Athens, the, the Athens is named for Athena, that's called the Parthenon, occupies six and a half acres compared to 35. The temple of Apollo in Delphi, Greece, occupies less than one acre. The Jerusalem temple occupied about the same size of land as the White House and its grounds in Washington, D.C., more than twice the ground taken up by Husker Memorial Stadium and its surroundings. It was a big place. The truth is, in the ancient world, you don't find a bigger temple anywhere. You don't find bigger structures or bigger buildings. Within those 35 acres, hundreds of priests served all the time. They offered sacrifices, they oversaw liturgies, they taught, they lectured, they mediated the law of Moses, they administrated the wealth of Israel. There were multiple chains and rooms 
and halls, the, the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of Israel, 71 men met in a great stone hall on the temple grounds. The sanctuary itself was the center of Israel's life and faith. Services began before daylight and concluded after night had fallen. And when a Jew believed in Jesus, they turned away from the temple and they were joined to the body of Christ. They were joined to the church. And they left all of the splendor and the magnificence of the temple behind and they entered into what was a much smaller, much plainer, far less impressive, unadorned world. They met in homes such as the homes were at the time. By the time the the end of the first century is coming around, they're beginning to meet in larger places. But for the most part in the early years, it was simply homes. There was no priesthood. There were no priestly garments. There was no incense. There were no sacrifices. There was no mediator present. There was just a man in in plain clothes like everyone else who read the scriptures, who taught from the scriptures, and called upon them to grow in faith, to grow in sanctification, to put their trust in Jesus and persevere in it. Where the temple had as many as 120 musicians for the, the morning time of prayer most house churches had no accompaniment at all and they simply sang hymns according to the the tunes that they had learned they prayed together they shared bread and wine together in the name of jesus what we call the lord's table what's called communion but it's the very same bread and wine that they would eat at a meal it it was a unimpressive plain ordinary common time there was nothing there to make anyone say "Ooh, ah and for some jews the change from splendor to simplicity was really hard to take and they found themselves leaving those those times of gathering saying but nothing happened but there was nothing there this was this was empty i don't feel as though there's been an event i don't feel as though that there was something that would kind of carry me through the week. And so the author of Hebrews writes this book to say, you must not fall away, you must persevere. It's not a minor issue. It was not a minor issue for them, and it's not a minor issue now. Turning away from genuine faith in Jesus in order to pursue Mere religion and ritual and tradition is a deadly error. And so the writer of Hebrews writes this book, and he writes primarily about the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, of his nature and of his work, and what that work has accomplished in the lives of those who believe. And so he begins, he, he steps out of the gate with a declaration of the supremacy of Christ in kind of a summary form. And virtually all of these statements are expanded on as the book unfolds, as we will see in the months to come. This morning we're going to look at the surpassing greatness of Jesus as Lord in the second part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. We will take on bigger chunks eventually. Next week, we'll look at the surpassing greatness of Jesus as Savior. The following week, we'll look at the remainder of chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, which uh, declares the greatness of Jesus as King. 
And we will also take a, a week in there because of the statements made about angels to, to deal with the topic of angels before we move into chapter 2. So let's, let's dive in here. I'll read from verses 1 through 4 so that we can catch the full context. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Lord, we come to your word with curiosity and with hunger and with need of spiritual nourishment and strength. We ask that your spirit would soften our hearts and open our eyes, give us ears to hear, convince us from your scripture of the truth of the things that are contained here, and build our faith, strengthen us in Jesus this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, let's look at the second part of of verse 2. We begin with this phrase that God has appointed Jesus heir of all things. It should be. There we go. Jesus is appointed heir of all things. Now, the word heir is not a special word. We use, it all our, uh, we use it ourselves all the time. People inherit all sorts of things. People inherit uh, great properties, houses, and land. People inherit very small things. I have my father's wristwatch. Uh, we, we inherit jewelry. We inherit uh, art. We inherit sometimes money. Um, it's not being an heir that makes Jesus stand out. It's what he is heir of. We're told here that he is the, the heir of all things. And the language is specific. It doesn't simply mean all things in kind of a general sense. It means each and every specific thing within creation. Jesus is the heir of everything. Everything in the universe is his rightful possession. I am, you are my clothing, your jewelry, the food that we eat, the water that we drink, the air that we, that we breathe, it all belongs to him as heir. And notice, too, that he is not simply someone who is rewarded by being the heir of all things. He has been given a responsibility. The scripture here tells us that God has appointed him heir of all things. That means that he has been given a responsibility, a stewardship. He is actually responsible for everything within creation. That means that he has been made Lord of all things. He has been placed in that high position. In Psalm chapter 2, the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, For by Jesus... All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. And for Jesus. 
And so for the, the original recipients, for the Jews reading this or hearing this, they're reminded right at, right at the outset, Moses doesn't inherit anything. Israel is not the recipient of all things. It's the Son of God. This is the, the one who gave his life uh, to die and rise again as your Savior. This is the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high as Lord. He's not some secondary being. It's only reasonable that Jesus is appointed the heir of all things because he is the one through whom God made the world. The next phrase. Through whom also he made the world. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Later in verse 3, All things were made through Him, Jesus, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus is the eternal Word who is the agent of creation that God used in creating everything that was created. Psalm 33 says, by the word of the Lord, and we know that that's Jesus. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, again, Jesus, all their host. The word of the Lord and the breath of his mouth, they're presented in the Psalms in a poetic fashion. That means that they're parallel statements. The word of the Lord and the breath of his mouth are the same thing. And the New Testament continues this theme later on in the book of Hebrews The writer says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, by Jesus himself, by the eternal word, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Some false religions teach that Jesus was simply the first created being and then he created everything else. But the scripture is clear that all things were made through him, and by him and for him and apart from him nothing was made that has been made nothing is in existence that was not created by the lord jesus christ so moses is not creator israel is not creator the temple is not creator the one that we have been called to worship the one that we have been called to acknowledge as lord and savior he's creator so the importance of jesus can't be overestimated can't be overstated in fact jesus is the very radiance of the glory of god as with the word air the word radiance is not a a special word light is radiating from the sun right now in fact if we turned off the lights and there is light radiating from these fluorescent bulbs if we turned off the lights there would be enough sunlight to see one another's faces because light is radiating from the sun Heat is also radiating from the sun, although it's only 71 degrees of heat radiating right now, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous out there. We were leaving for church, and I asked Linda why she wasn't on her bike, and she just kind of looked at me and shook her head. But it's a gorgeous day out there. Light radiates from the sun. Heat radiates from the sun. Here's the thing. The light that radiates from the sun is not the sun. And the heat that comes from the sun is not the sun. Every analogy of of who God is ultimately breaks down, even biblical analogies. 
So while the light from the sun is not the sun and the heat from the sun is not the sun, Jesus radiating the glory of God can do that only because he is himself God. John writes this in John chapter 1, the word of God, the word, the son of God, Jesus, became flesh. The word is becoming flesh is how Jesus, the man, comes into being and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that's the Son of God, the Word of God, Jesus. He has explained him. When Jesus radiates the glory, the exact glory of God, God, the nature of God, it's so that we might know God. It's so that we might know who God is and what he is like. In order to radiate the glory of God, Jesus must be God himself. Exodus chapter 33, Moses says to God up on the mountain, please show me your glory. The Lord responds to Moses, you cannot see my face. For men shall not see me and live. You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Notice the theological math here. Show me your glory. You cannot see my face. No one can see me and live. The glory of God is the face of God, is God himself. The glory of God is God himself. Jesus radiating the glory of God is God himself expressing God and explaining God and revealing God to us. This is the one who has called us to repent. This is the one who has called us to faith. This is the one who has promised us eternal life, who gave his life for us, who rose from the dead for us, who is the object of our worship. And for the original recipients of this letter and for many people today, this is the one that's being set aside. This is the one who's being told, no, you go over here. We're going to go back to something that is more outwardly impressive. And Jesus can radiate the fullness of the glory of God because he is the exact representation of God. The exact representation of his nature. The word translated exact representation here was used for the, the little die, the little stamp that was used to make coins in the ancient world. And in fact, the word die is used today to, to describe the, the making of coins. They, they, I looked this up. You can find anything on the Internet. Um, uh, they, they begin with a very large carving. It's, it's probably 18 inches across, the a large carving of a, the face of a coin. And it's approved and it's checked and it's finally said, yes, that's exactly what we want. And then now in our modern times, a computer milling machine takes that large image and carves it into an image that's exactly the right size for the coin. And that that piece that's, that's milled out by the computer is called a master hub. And that master hub then is sent to the mint. And the mint uses that master hub to make what's called a working hub. And the working hub is to make what's called a die. And the die is what's used to stamp out coins. So they might stamp out, I don't know, 50,000 or 100,000 coins before the die wears out. And the working hub is used to make another die. And when the working hub wears out, they've got the master they can go to. The, The point being that 
when coins are made, that finished coin has to be identical to that original large carving. The appearance has to be exactly the same. Well, when it says that Jesus is the perfect representation of God, again, the analogy breaks down. Dyes must be, uh, must be identical to the master in appearance, but Jesus is identical to God in nature and essence. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three persons and one God. And so in John chapter 14, when Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus answers him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. They are the same in nature and essence. And the Athanasian Creed puts this into terms. It summarizes what we see taught throughout Scripture. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. All the Father is, the Son is, and the Holy Spirit is. The Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Spirit Almighty, and yet they are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. And so the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord, and yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. The Trinity is a mystery that we are not going to understand here. And we may not be able to fathom the Trinity ever. Even in eternity, even without sin blinding us and preventing our minds from functioning, there are certain aspects to the nature of God that are simply going to be beyond our comprehension. And and just from a personal, subjective point of view, I kind of want it that way. I don't want a God who's simply a big version of me. I don't want a God who is simply a human being, but on a large scale. I want a God who can do everything that the Bible says that our God has done. So being fully God, being, uh, being appointed heir of all things, being the very radiance of the glory of God, being the exact representation of all God is, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. I missed it. I missed something in there. That should say Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. So you can just... Thank you. What this means is that Jesus actively maintains and carries each and everything in creation all the time. It's simple. He is involved in the existence and the ongoing existence of every single thing in creation all the time. We like to say, God intervened. Or someone will say, boy, it was really a problem, but then God showed up. But those are incorrect statements. Because God was never absent. See, statements like that kind of imply that God is largely away. He's pretty much absent. He's pretty much hands-off. And every once in a while, he kind of reaches down and makes an adjustment when necessary. When what Scripture says is he is intimately involved with everything all the time. He's constantly at work. He never ceases. He never sleeps. He never stops. He never slows down. He never takes a break. As Jesus was coming to a close in the... the, uh, 
Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, he said that God feeds the birds of the air and clothes, clothes the grass of the field. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says not one sparrow is ignored by God. And he even numbers the hairs on your head. Nothing is too small for him to uphold. And nothing is so large that it can exist without him upholding it. I I love little trivial details that few other people care about. Atoms are made up of subatomic particles and those subatomic particles are made up of yet smaller subatomic particles and they're not sure what that that third layer of subatomic particles might be made of maybe that's it maybe science just says eventually that's as far as we can go that's all there is and maybe they'll say well these things are made up of yet other things but no matter how small they go they're being held together by the lord jesus christ On the other end of the spectrum, the largest star that we know about is called NML Cygni. NML Cygni. It would fill half of our solar system. It would fill half of our solar system. If one edge was at our sun, it would extend more than halfway through our solar system. It's beyond our our ability to even comprehend how big it is. Jesus holds the smallest things together. He holds the largest things together. Now, the original recipients of this letter were saying, we miss the pageantry. We miss the splendor. We miss the magnificence. It was was absolutely stunning. It was awe-inspiring. And you've brought us into this home. You've brought us into this, this small room where there's nothing impressive. And, you know, for those of you visiting One Hope Fellowship, this is as good as it gets. I mean, we don't have stained glass unless one of the kids throws juice at the window. And, and this is it for, for the worship team. Erin is, is awesome, and I try and keep up with her. Th- this is who we are. This is what it is. And, and they were saying, that, that can't be right. Surely if it's God, the outside has to be uh, overwhelmingly impressive. They confuse the outward spectacle with the inward reality. That what's actually taking place within the lives of the church is the miracle of rebirth and and conversion. What's taking place is sanctification whereby the very nature of a sinner is transformed at at the core of that person, at the very center of who that person is. And very little changes on the outside. The outside may never change until the resurrection takes place. And because they confused outward spectacle with inward substance, they they wondered perhaps if the unimpressive nature of the church meant that Jesus was really not worthy. That they should go back to the temple because certainly something that looked that magnificent represented something that magnificent. 
But Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the creator of each and everything, the heir of all things, the sustainer of everything. He created everything by his word. He upholds everything by the word of his power. He himself is the very word of God, the very voice of God. He isn't impressed by spectacle and pageantry. He looks at the heart. The church in Acts chapter 2 devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the evangelism that took place has, I think, never been paralleled. Where thousands came. Not thousands who stood and raised their hands or nodded their heads or made a decision for Christ, but, but six months later had forgotten all about it but thousands who were transformed and so turned Jerusalem upside down that persecution began in a serious way. By equal measure, sadly, as, as the last 2,000 years have shown, if you look at churches that have given themselves more and more to pageantry and outward displays, they have inevitably fallen away from the truth of Scripture and the truth of the gospel. See, as we get our eyes off of who Jesus is and off of the purity of the word of God, and we look at what our experience is going to be, we begin to drift. Well, the message of Hebrews is one message stated in two ways. It's stated negatively and it's stated positively. The negative message is don't fall away. And the positive message is keep pressing on. Keep persevering. When we come to worship, it isn't to impress ourselves. It's not to have a magnificent experience, but to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to our God. Knowing that he has spoken to us in his word, he has filled us with his spirit, he has promised us eternal life, and is sending us now as light and salt into the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us, for the power and for the authority of your word. Lord, I I confess that as I come in each Sunday, as I look around the room, I, I wish for different surroundings. But the truth is, Jesus, you said that wherever two or three are gathered in your name. You are in their midst. You're not more present with a big church than with a small church. (coughs) You're not more present with more spectacle or more pageantry than with a, a plain, humble, unimpressive gathering. You look on the heart, not what on what's on the outside. That's true of the individual, and it, it's true of your church as well. Lord, would you check our hearts for the temptation that we might have to pursue an experience or to diminish what you have done and what you are doing because... It's not outwardly impressive.
Would you grant us confidence in the simplicity of our faith in Christ and the truth of your word? Let us find rest and joy with one another as we fellowship, as we encourage one another, as we strengthen one another. Not as people attending an event or a concert, but as a family that meets together weekly to laugh and and to weep and to pray for one another and rejoice with one another. Keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, as the scripture says, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we need to keep our eyes fixed on you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. And we are dismissed. And I think I just turned it on. I think I was off the whole time. So that's off. And that's on. Was I on? Maybe I hit it twice. Oh, you're going to go hide.